Well, what is the theory? Where does it come from? How do we come up with it? How do we get to the point where we can say something's a theory or that it's useful or practical or can guide us in a way? So it comes from observation. Um, essentially, we get to know the world by observing it. Um, if we can't see it or we can't measure it, then essentially we don't know anything about it. So we observe. We observe patterns. We make connections. We see things happening on a regular basis over and over again in a similar manner. And eventually we decide, ooh, that happens an awful lot. You know, if, if we drop a ball in a vacuum, it's going to fall at the same acceleration, swipe the size of the mass of the ball. Yeah, it happens over and over again. We've got something going on here. And from this, we infer theory. We take a lot of specific observations and we make these big, broad generalizations about it that let us do stuff. So, for science geeks in the room, so basically, theory is a collection of hypotheses that are verifiable or falsifiable conjectures about the way the world works. So, you make a statement, I think this happens because of this, then you go off and you test it, generally to some degree of statistical significance. So you can say, yeah, this happens in, well, depending on your level of statistical significance, will depend on whatever you're doing at the time, but essentially this happens in like nearly every single case we've looked at. What does theory actually tell us? First answer is surprisingly little. Scientific and philosophical theories are highly, highly specific. They talk about very, very specific systems in very, very specific language in very, very specific ways. Essentially, you don't go off using string theory to explain how you can push a thumb pack into a board, because that's just pointless, silly, and overcomplicating the situation. So they tell us very specific things. They are based on a very large number of assumptions. Anything we do, um, be it mechanics, physics, chemistry, medicine, they're all based on assumptions at some stage that something works in a particular manner over and over again, and that we can exploit that. They apply rigidly within this framework. This sort of goes to a philosophical idea called relativism, where if you change the underlying assumptions of a theory, that theory may no longer be valid, and another completely invalid theory might actually be validated instead. So like you see this over time, the scientific revolution, who God's not making things fall to earth? Look, it's actually gravity. It also tells us surprisingly much, well, the good ones at least. It allows us to make huge leaps in logic. So basically, we can just ignore loads of variables because they're controlled or they're in the background, they don't matter. So we can just go, this is happening, we know this happens, we can do stuff. We can accomplish successful manipulation of the world around us. And we can do so with an absolute minimum of effort. All the long, hard equations that were used to calculate gravitational effects and stuff like that, we don't need them now. All we need to know is the acceleration of gravity at a particular point. We can do whatever we want regarding that at that, that, that point in time. So, but what, what's in a theory? Like I said, assumptions. And assumptions are very important because assumptions essentially are we have, have to, at some stage, draw a line. How far down the line do we need to go in order to explain what it is that we're trying to explain? Do we go one step back and decide, 
we really need to know what's going on in that gas. So do we go to molecular level or do we say, that's not explaining it, this is completely aberrant, this makes no sense, let's go subatomic. You know, where do we go? We have to draw a line at some stage where we assume that the system is constant and acts in a constant manner. And we do this through abstraction, which is basically assuming a specific level of knowledge that, you know, we don't need to know anything past this line or above this line, we just need to know what's in here in order to be able to accomplish our end goal. So, building theories and testing hypotheses. To test the theory, we need a testable, verifiable, or falsifiable hypothesis. You need to be able to go out and look and examine what does this say we should see in the world around us when we observe this happening over and over again. And we can either verify this or we can falsify it. We need quantifiable variables and we need controls. We need to be able to control out everything except the one variable that we're really interested in. Otherwise, we've got all these interactions happening that essentially we go out, if we change two variables at once, we don't know what's happening. It's like if you change dose and grind size at the same time, you just end up looking at it going, Ugh, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> so, what do we know? Coffee is elusive. So, we know stuff about water. John knows loads of stuff about water that I don't know. It's kind of cool. So we, we know stuff about this. We also know stuff about temperature. We know sort of you have to have it vaguely hot to extract something. Contact time, that's a very important thing as well. Agitation, this happens in many ways. So this happens through stirring, water entering the coffee, convection within the water. Dose. We can accurately calculate our dose. We all have really accurate scales. Grind size. We can, well, we can assume that although we've got uneven grind sizes, that it's going to be consistently uneven at the very least. So we can work with that. And what about coffee? The actual raw material behind what we make. We've got freshness. You know, we can see roast date, that's this season's crop. That should be fresh enough. Roast. This comes from a good roaster who I think has an idea of what he's doing and it doesn't look black. Or it doesn't look green. And chemical composition. You know, we've some work done on this. Last year's presentation from Simonelli was really interesting like that. Not really feasible for most of us to be trying to, you know, break apart coffee into its chemical compounds, but, you know, it's a cool idea. And then there's the final cup. What the hell do we know about the final cup? Anyone? Tastes nice. Maybe. Um, you can get a TBS reading. Um, that's not very useful unless you have another 20 cups lined up next to it. Probably test its pH. Not particularly interesting either. So what do we really know? Um, well, all we can really know is whether or not it tastes nice. It doesn't even particularly look nice. Get a filter coffee in Starbucks in a mug, I probably from a couple of meters away could not tell whether it came from a speciality coffee shop or from Starbucks. You know, not unless I won the cup tasting last year. Um, sometimes I wish coffee was more like food. Sometimes. This is a nice little quote from the Fatal Cookbook. Right, so pour the oyster juice into the warm liquid, stir the mixture well, and place a small drop of it on the lens of a refractometer. It should read 14 degrees of bricks. 
If the reading is slightly less than 14 degrees, ass. I spell check this. <laughs> like three times. A small amount of fructose to the mixture and retest the risk level. This is cool. I like this. Something doesn't taste right. I can add to it. I can make this better. I can't do that with coffee. If it tastes shit, I have to dump it in the bin and start again. You make me make a slight adjustment, hope for the best this time around. I started making espresso last week. I pulled one good shot out of four kilos of coffee. Go me. So yeah, I don't like capers very much. This is another cool quote from another cookbook. Do you recall eating Sultana brand for breakfast? The Sultana to brand flake ratio was always a huge anxiety to a point sometimes that one was tempted to add extra Sultanas which inevitably resulted in too many sultanas, and one lost that pleasure of discovering the occasional sweet chewiness in contrast to the bratty crunch. When administering such things as capers, it is very good to remember sultana from. So yeah, this is Fergus Henderson's quote. I, I, I would replace capers and sultanas with variables here. Sometimes it's possible to add too much. I'm a social scientist. We've got a thing called game theory that we use sometimes to try to make predictions about elections, when conflicts will start, and sometimes to a very high degree of accuracy. Unfortunately, the problem with it is, is that the more complicated you make the model, the less predictive power it has. It's an interesting little contradiction because the more variables you add, the more interaction effects you're adding, and you actually dilute, basically, your knowledge of what's actually happening within the system. And essentially, it just gets to the point where it doesn't tell you anything. So if I'm there and I'm really trying to control for like temperature and I check my pH every single brew, and you know I've tested the TDS of the water in my kettle every time, and you know I've gotten really fine sieves and I've sieved everything to the risk of the coffee going stale while I'm doing this really strenuous process of shaking it around in a sieve, and suddenly I start pouring my water and my thermometer drops three degrees. I got bollocks. You know, this has been controlled to such a tight degree that it's quite possible this will fail. And this is something I've noticed making espresso in the last week, is that if my dose is out by 0.3 of a gram, that could be about 10 seconds in the shot time. It's so tightly controlled. And I suppose that's the challenge training on a home machine, is that you've got these inconsistencies that you can't control. Um, so I'm gonna start from now saying that I brew at home. My water quality is pretty damn good. I don't use a filter, I drink my tap water a fair bit. I did not in my old house. I do now. And any time I've brewed outside my house, I have used big bottles of calibrated water. So everything that follows here is based on this little background. Next. Fuzzy logic. This is a thing. Fuzzy logic is a form of logic that deals with reasoning that is approximate rather than fixed and exact. It's used in a surprisingly amount of very precise things. It's used programming AIs. It's used in genealogies. It's used a bit in genetics. It's used, if you've seen those robotic cars, um, that you know, basically steer themselves around. I think a few people on TED were doing them. Like they're based on sort of another type of logic similar to this as well, which basically, it allows us to make inferences from approximate or incomplete data based on experience. And very importantly, <laughs> it allows for constant revision or assessment of elements in a set as new data is acquired. 
if, if we're following this like, rigid idea of scientific method and empiricism, we'll observe loads of things happening repeatedly. And then someday we're walking along, and it's called the Jungian dilemma. You walk into a wall where suddenly something you've observed happening a million times before doesn't, for absolutely no reason. And you don't quite know why. And your theory falls flat on its face and you go back to the start, because all this data you've built up is now, it doesn't work. Your, your assumptions have been blown out of the water. But what sort of logic like this allows you to do is you can revise as you go along. If something changes, you make a change. And we do this in a surprising number of situations. You're pulling a shot on the machine dialing in in the morning. You look at it. Oh, that's overflowing the cup. The timer's at 11 seconds. I'm not even going to taste that. That's bad. That's based on experience. It's not based on any approximates. You don't know the extraction. You don't know the amount of water that's gone through it. But you've basically built this thing up in experience. That's not how fast. And I've seen baristas do this with remarkably like, great accuracy, just like even a couple of grams on either side. It's like, no, that's far too fast. That's about eight grams off. I've, you know, I've seen it happen. People do this. You learn from experience, you revise, you go back, you retest. So, but yeah, we'll move on a tiny bit. There's also Bayesian inference, which is very geeky. Um, this is a bit more mathematical, um, but it's, it basically follows Bayes' rule, which relates the odds of one event <laughs> over the odds of, it, of its opposite before and after conditioning on another event. And basically, then you use it to update the probability estimate for a hypothesis as new evidence comes in. So it's sort of like, I was talking to someone on the train yesterday. There's a, straight off, there's a 50-50 chance there or thereabouts that I was talking to either a man or a woman. If I tell you something else, like, they were going to a dressmaking workshop, would you think the odds are more in favor of that being a woman than a man? Not look at a quill. Um, but this differs slightly from fuzzy logic in that it attempts to estimate the probability of an element's membership in a set as opposed to estimating to the extent of which something is an element in the set. So in fuzzy logic you have, that's grand, that's not so grand than the, if you're pulling a shot. Whereas if you were applying Bayesian inference, which is uh, another, basically another type of trying to quantify um, sort of uncertainty. You basically end up with like, you know, you have your variables like the dose was right, this was right, there's a high probability this happens. If something goes wrong, then some, you know, you look at the variables again and sort of you revise based on that. You can be a lot more mathematical and methodical with this. But it's just throwing out there a few ways that you can sort of think about revising estimates without always being so precise. And this is important for me at home because I don't have equipment. When I went to the Brewers' Cup last year, I had nothing. I got a thermometer about four days before the competition. So I had to go to Maastricht. I had to brew three Chemex at the same time to a very high degree of consistency to be able to ensure they were tasty. I should go to the... Oh, yeah. Imprecision is bad, right? Uh, maybe. So, a case study in applied fuzziness. This was my goal last year when I went to Maastricht. This is what I had to do. Nothing else. 
I wanted to do this on stage. If, if I didn't place anywhere, as long as I walked off thinking, eh, this, is, this is good, I enjoyed that, I was quite happy with this. So this, this was the goal I had when I went there. I had a number of parameters. Ease of use. I wanted to be able to brew and talk at the same time. I didn't want to have to turn my back on the judges. I didn't want to have to stop while I looked at three different measurements. I didn't want to be put off by anything weird happening. And um, yeah. It had to be consistent. I had to be able to talk to three judges about three coffees I brewed and at least be able to say, yeah, it does taste like that. Not that tastes like that, that tastes like that. It had to be repeatable. I needed to be able to dial this in and practice and come back to it a few hours later and be able to do it over again in a very similar manner. It had to taste good. This was very important. And it had to be transferable. I trained on a Barazza Maestro at home I had to go to Maastricht and use an Uber grinder. <laughs> Big difference. I needed a way in which I could just go from one to the other and not have to spend four hours doing it. I needed to be able to go, this is my goal, I need to get there, let's see if I can transfer it over here. In the end, it turns out I got really lucky. So I took out the variables I could easily work with. Coffee ducks. That's simple. I'll weigh out my beans beforehand, I'll grind them. If anything looks weird, I can you know, re-weigh them as I put them into the basket. Water weight, I'm going to be brewing on scales. This is covered. Grand. Time. This became very important for me, particularly in the area of transferability. I built up my brew recipe, and I noted the time that the coffee I was liking came out in. I decided that when I was going to use the Uber, I would keep time constant as my first variable. So when I dialed in on the Uber first, my goal was to be able to match the contact time of the brew from the Uber with the brew from the Maestro. This was my first goal. Anything else could follow after this. And then grind. I had to be able to assume that, yeah, I can, if I change the grind, I'll assume that it's always going to be uneven in the exact same manner. I don't want to worry about the grind, because if I worry about using the Uber grinder over my home grinder, then I'm going to get in a world of depression and I'm probably going to miss the plane. <laughs> so I decided I'll start with time and then any changes I have to make once I hit that time will be a product of that grind profile. It will just be that particular grinder. Now, the hard to control ones, kettle temperature. I saw people using thermometers in their kettles before they were pouring. I saw insulated kettles. I saw people being very worried, you know, dialing up the temperatures on the boilers to 97, 98 to ensure they were still hot enough by the time they got to perform. Brew temperature. Bar putting this into a temperature-controlled water bath, there was no way I was going to be able to fully control the temperature in the brew. At least not keep it absolutely constant. There was going to be some type of drop. Maybe a tiny one, maybe not an awful lot. My coffee's still coming out pretty hot at the other side, but there's still going to be a drop. I can't do much about this. I'm going to assume that this temperature drop will always be the same. If I brew in the same device with the same amount of water, the same amount of beans for the same amount of time, the start temperature and the end temperature will always be on the same curve or line, at least within a good degree of certainty, enough that I can brew this nice coffee. Water delivery, you know, I'm pouring in circles that are never the same from varying heights, my hand's shaking, I can't control that. That's a degree of agitation I have no control over. That's going to happen. 
screw it. I hope, <laughs> I hope the errors are, you know, can be just way away. And agitation, I just, I refuse to stir. And to this day, I have a morbid fear of stirring. <laughs> I can't do it. Even when my French press has reached 13% extraction, I just can't. So, yeah. So I did little experiments. This is temperature loss in a Harry Bruno kettle over a period of seven minutes, which is far more than my brew time, which was two. It started at 98, and seven minutes later, it reached 91. Um, this little discrepancy in the middle here, this was the point at which I picked up the kettle to start pouring a brew, just to see what would happen as I took water out. Turns out the bono is very, very stable. It's losing, I think it was a degree every minute or so with the lid on. The lid actually wasn't even fully on, it was half cracked open. The only bit occurred here when I actually agitated it and the water circulated around and changed the temperature slightly. And then when I started pouring in, I think just about here, I poured something like 500 milliliters of water out of it in this, between this point and this point. And it was still only losing about one degree every minute. I was actually pretty happy with that. It's like, that's not what I was expecting to see at all when I did that. But that's what happened. And like that, that was a very useful tool. I don't know if I could have been quite so consistent and mastered the violin in doing that. Uh, next one, please. Temperature loss in a Chemex. If I start my brew by rapidly pouring in 100 milliliters of water into the Chemex to get a bed of coffee or bed of water for the infusion, over the course of the two minutes that it took this brew, it went from 96 degrees to 92. This drop of two degrees happened as I was pouring into cold grinds. If I'd actually bothered to pour a brew, I'd say that temperature drop could have been a lot less because the grinds would have actually been at a temperature rather than just cold. And next slide. Temperature loss in Chemex if I poured 300 millimeters rapidly in. This was really not what I wanted to see. <laughs> but started at 96 again, dropped by two degrees as it hit the cold grinds. And this little dip to 91 actually happened at 1 minute and 59 seconds as the last of the water drained out the bottom of the Chemex. Once again, Chemex turns out to be incredibly stable for temperatures. It's very temperature controlled, at least in the brew method I was using. So basically, go back three. One more? No. So basically, what I managed to do on my own in my kitchen with no equipment, and I think this is something I'll always be proud of, was I was able to stand up on stage, brew three Chemex at the same time while talking in front of a couple of hundred people, ignoring all the people who are watching me online, and I was able to produce three brews that in the end had a difference of 0.01 TDS at the end, between the lowest and the highest. And I was able to do that because I was able to go along and basically controlled, controlled, didn't particularly care, I'm pointing at things, come back, come back. <laughs> and one more. Yeah. Control, control, didn't care, 
got rid of what I couldn't control, or what I could control. Control, control, and then time and grind. I was just able to get it down to, if my coffee tastes good like this, if I put it through at this time, I'll approximate this time again, I'll change grind until it tastes good. So yeah, um, a case study in applied fuzziness. You can be precise and fuzzy at the same time. You don't have to be dead on accurate to be able to produce good coffee all the time. Makes things a lot easier and a lot more fun, as it turns out. <laughs> I got to a stage where I really didn't enjoy making coffee. Really, really did enjoy making coffee. Thank you. Filtration, 
you don't have to care. You know, you keep an eye on it, but that will improve the quality. Yeah. And you know what I mean? You've got if you get that in place, then you don't have to care about it. Yeah. You don't need to worry about that every time you set up to brew. All you have to worry about is getting the right amount of grinds in the basket and not over pouring by hundred milliliters. And you know, you'd be quite happy. I'm really purposely not talking about espresso. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so have you got any questions from the audience? Oh, Roland. <laughs> so it's kind of a philosophy question, I suppose, rather than a sciencey one. You talk a lot about science and you know, having assumptions and being aware of those assumptions. And Fine, you can work with model. But I'm going to suggest that coffee people, we're quite good at getting that there's a sciencey bit to it. And we all really like playing with the sciencey stuff and measuring stuff and, and great. But we're not so good at the other assumptions. The assumptions about experience, about, well, that, this person's going to enjoy it because I enjoyed it. It's enough that I enjoy it, but I want to present it to a lot of people and you know what, that person might have a different experience because philosophically I'm, I'm, I'm projecting my assumptions about the world onto them. So I'd like you to talk a bit about, about that. Ooh. Um, well, but that's, I suppose, big question reading on the customer. <laughs> you know, frequent lots of coffee places, but at the same time I'm sort of not because you know, I know a lot of people, and I've been to Steve's Roastery, and he roasts up most of the coffee I drink, and you know, I, I've got like that bit of an insider's perspective as well, and I'm really, I suppose, sympathetic and empathetic, and you know, I've sort of, I've worked in service, I've worked in kitchens, I worked in a cafe for a brief period for a couple of months, you know, I, I you know, the ins and outs, the heart, you know, the pain of busy rush and stuff, and I mean, it, it is hard, and I know, I get excited about stuff. I get really excited about stuff. And then I meet someone else who's less excited about stuff. And it's just, eh. Yeah, it's, it's just coffee. Like, um, my mom won't drink my coffee. <laughs> so destroying, you know. Um, I was standing next to Steve in his roastery cupping samples a couple of weeks ago and I was embarrassed at how not excited I was in comparison. And I mean, I think we're, we're all our own person. And I think like the best service that I've ever had were people who did just wanna show me a good time. It wasn't about, it's the best coffee ever you have to try. It's like, I'm really excited, would you try this? Um, like I walked into a new shop recently, just set up. Um, what's her name? Roasted Brown. I walked in there recently and I was like, I have a filter coffee. I don't know if we're set up for this yet. You know, we're just open. But if you give me five minutes, I can like brew you an AeroPress. We've, we've only got espresso blend. It's okay. That was the damn best AeroPress I've had in two years. By far. You know, that was all it was, was just, he wanted to give me an experience. I went there, I had it, it was fantastic. It, it, you know, it wasn't pretentious, it wasn't like, oh yeah, sure, I'll make you the best coffee you've ever damn had because I got the best beans in the world. It was like, yeah, okay, I just, I want to make you a good coffee. And that was fantastic. And I like seeing that. Yeah. And I mean, that's what I want to do. That's what I wanted to do well when I entered the Brewers Cup first. And I think that's the most important part of service for me is that the person behind gives a damn. And it's not about the fanciness or the, the crap or the shiny stuff. It's just that shiny stuff is there because they give a damn and want to give me the best damn experience possible. 
regardless. Hi Keith, yeah, thanks, thanks, that was fantastic. Uh, I just wanted to ask a question from your point of view. Is there a way that cafes don't connect with the public, or is there a way that they could connect better in terms of home brewing kits or when they come in and information about coffees? Um, it would be good to get your perspective. I'm biased. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I mean, I think we're getting to do it pretty good in Dublin now. Um, I don't have a massive amount of experience outside of Dublin. I've got a couple of places. Um, I mean, the places I've been tend to stick out in my mind was just a couple of weeks after I first found 3AB, I was in London. And somehow, after wandering up and down Shoreditch Road for about an hour and a half, I finally found my way into Willem's little shop in the clothes shop. And I had one of the best time service experiences I ever had. I knew nothing. But I got engaged with, like, I was Colin or Steve walking into the shop. You know, I got a little bit of Lowe's profile, I got a bit of talk about this. And I wasn't trying to sell me anything. It's like, you think this would be good in filter? Nah, nah, here, you should try this instead. Oh, that, that made me exceptionally happy. First time I came in here, Colin gave me a free cup of coffee. Best damn cup of coffee I've ever had. <laughs> Colin! But <laughs> <laughs> he still made coffee, that is. <laughs> but I think it's I got very Thank you. <laughs> I got very lucky uh, in a way um, you know there was a lot of great people around and I just I happened to stumble upon it and I think that's been a lot of what I've had in the last like, two years since I got interested in coffee was I met a lot of great people who were really engaging and would quite happily spend hours talking to you like Dave Regan yesterday when he won the Brewers Cup, like he was scared. He didn't like talking in front of people, but I've been sitting for the last two months watching him sell expensive piece of coffee equipment to people over the counter he'd never met before without blinking an eye. You know, um, it's just, it, you know, there's, I just had such good experience. I think I can't really comment on the bad unless you're talking about, you know, bad coffee. Well, I think it's something that we often forget. We're so focused on, on those little details. That we forget about that experience an awful lot of time. And I know, just in our own case, every time we get an email or a tweet uh, from somebody saying that they really enjoyed to come to 3FE, it's always, and I mean like 99.999% of the time, accompanied by a comment saying that the service is really good. To the extent that I would say it's impossible to for somebody to enjoy what you do unless the service is good. And I think kind of talking about all the variables, that's the one thing that isn't a variable. You know, you have an ultimate <laughs> control over you, you, there's not anything that can come into play that can really ruin it. Giving good customer service yeah. is super easy. Well, for, for business owners, like, I mean, if somebody wants like a, a brand new espresso machine, they're looking at, you know, 8,000 euros. If you, if you have to be really nice to the next customer that comes through the door, how does that cost you? Like, it's, it's your most valuable resource and it doesn't cost you anything. You know, it'll cost you in the long run. I think so. It's a good point to raise. Um, any more questions from the audience? Or? Let's go. Cool, ladies and gentlemen, keep us open.